Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Tim Warnsby. For almost 40 years, Tim has covered hockey and lots of other sports for the Toronto Sun, the Globe and Mail, and Hockey Night in Canada. He has been to three Winter Olympics, 11 Stanley Cups, 17 World Junior Championships, 13 Memorial Cups, and 13 University Cups. He has also written a book chronicling the Canadian men's hockey team's gold medal winning run at the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics, aptly titled Goal, How Gretzky's Men Ended Canada's 50-Year Olympic Hockey Drought. Welcome, Tim, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? I'm great, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm in uh, Cabbage Town neighborhood of Toronto, near Parliament Street, just east of Parliament Street. So uh, Kathy, my wife, and I have lived here for almost 15 years now. Or no, we, we're, we're, we've passed the 15-year mark. So uh, we love the neighborhood. We love what it offers. We're so close to downtown. We're so close to the other side, Riverside, on the other side of the Don Valley Parkway. So it's kind of a neat location to live. I think it's a fantastic location. That's great. Now, for a decade, you've been a free agent and a freelancer. What are you covering, and who are you working for these days? Well, I, I had the fortunate uh, relationship with my old boss at the Toronto Sun, Scott Morrison, and uh, we both sort of stepped into semi-retirement at the same time. And uh, Scott was an author way before I was. In fact, uh, that was his plan going into retirement was to write a few books. So we met for lunch way back in 2015. We sort of brainstormed a few ideas and uh, I was going to be his sort of assistant, researcher, writer, interviewer, whatever you have. And uh, um, we came up with a few ideas. And uh, one of the ideas I had was for my book, the 2002 uh, Olympic team ending that 50-year drought. Um, Scott wasn't really interested in that one, but he encouraged me, said, you've gone through the process now with me a couple of times. Why don't you write it on your own? And Scott never went to Salt Lake City. I was there. And uh, I think I'm thankful for him to sort of push me in that direction because it was a fun process to go through. But, uh, you know, some of the books that uh, I've worked with Scott in the last 10 years have been uh, 100 moments in the in NHL history when they celebrated their 100th anniversary. Uh, the 1972 book, which was just fabulous, talking to those guys that are still around from that team. Last time we saw each other was at the Doug McLean book launch for draft day. Uh, that was a fun book. Boy, does Doug have a lot of stories. Uh, certainly a book that I would read over it again and again and uh the last one we're just finishing up hopefully it'll be out in the fall will be on mike keenan his his life story and mike's still coaching in his in his mid to late 70s uh he's picked up the olympic gig for team italy because they're the host of the next winter olympics and they get an automatic spot in the men's hockey tournament so uh and that's a fascinating book boy sometimes you hate mike you, you know you're, you're delving into stories about what he did to certain players but then other times you, you love the guy so uh I, I'm really looking forward to seeing the finished product. I know we're in the second draft stage of that book. Excellent. Well, that's going to be a great project. You're right. He's a very interesting character. Now, Tim, let's go all the way back. Get the Tim Warnsby story. You are not a native Torontonian. Where were you born? And please describe your upbringing. Yeah, I was born in Waterloo, right downtown. The wind blew from the east. We got a, a, a nice smell of seagrams. And uh, if, we, if it blew from the south, uh, we got a nice smell of carlings. Uh, so, you know, it was a real brewery town. Well, it's really a university town, really. Um, you know, University of Waterloo, Wilford Laurier, they've grown into such big, uh, uh, places now for, for me, the town really revolves around that a little bit of the tech industry, obviously, uh, Blackberry was from some University of Waterloo students, uh, but, uh, it was a great place to, to grow up. I, I grew up in a sports oriented family. Uh, my dad was a pretty good junior B hockey player. I uh, played for the legendary Waterloo Siskins. They, uh, he was a member of one of the Ontario Championship teams in the in the mid fifties. Actually, they beat uh, Harry Neal and the Weston Dukes. And funny story about that, Andrew. One time, I brought my dad to a Leafs practice, and uh, I introduced him to Harry. And uh, I didn't know the story, but my dad whispered in my ear, "We beat Harry Neal in the nineteen fifty four Sutherland Cup." And uh, so I said, "Harry, my dad says uh, the Waterloo Siskins beat your Weston Dukes," and he goes, "Yeah." We were a bunch of 16-year-olds hoping to go to St. Mike's the next year. Your dad's team were all 20, 21-year-olds. They were all married. They had kids in the stands. And I said, how's that, Dad? He goes, yeah, he's right. So, so that was kind of a funny story. But, uh, you know, so I gravitated towards sports a lot. Couldn't play much. Maybe baseball and golf were my two best sports. But, uh, you know, maybe I, I, I fell into the sports writing by accident. I was going to the University of Waterloo in the kinesiology program. And uh, 
I wrote a few articles for the university newspaper called The Imprint. I think maybe in the summer of my third year, after my third year, I was uh, downtown Waterloo, uh, which isn't very big, and ran into the old sports writer of the weekly newspaper, the Waterloo Chronicle, a guy named Rick Campbell. Great guy. And uh, by then, he moved up onto uh, the role of publisher. And he said to me, uh, I see you're writing for the imprint. And I said, yeah, Rick. And I tried to be a smart ass. Yeah, I didn't know how easy a job you had or something like that. And, and the truth is, I really enjoyed it more, not so much covering the games, but writing the profile pieces. And he said, well, listen, I know you, I, I worked at the local uh, country club, Westbound Golf Course in the back shop. He says, I know you work at the golf course, but um, when my sports writer goes on his two-week vacation in August, would you... Could you fill in, cover some uh, events and stuff? And I said, well, I'll need some help. Uh, but yeah, of course I wouldn't. Anyway, he, he came to me after that two-week stint and said, you know, you should go into this business. You're pretty good at it. And uh, I hadn't really thought of it. I hadn't really thought of what I wanted to do. Uh, as a result, uh, he helped me get into Ryerson. And uh, he said, you know, the best way to get in is get some letters of recommendation. I'll help you put together your portfolio. And lo and behold, I got in and... Uh, uh, in between my uh, uh, sec or just after my second year there, I, I got an internship at the Sun, and they kept me on for my third year. I wasn't really interested in school after that because I was getting a better education uh, hanging around the Sun Sports section, and uh, I had some great mentors there: Jim Hunt, Scott Morrison, uh, Wayne Parrish hired me. What a great man he is, still is. Uh, Jim O'Leary. I can just go down the list. Uh, uh, a lot of my friends uh, to this day are from that summer of 1988 and that was just a great time to I think I worked every day but maybe four days that whole summer and I don't think people realize Tim the Toronto Sun sports section in that time that was the heyday it was the most significant source of sports unfortunately today and this is across all newspapers the sports section isn't what it was do you want to talk a little about the impact and influence of the Toronto Sun sports section sure um this is an interesting story when I got hired on sort of full-time in, in, in September of 89, I had this uh, ch um, job lined up in Scotland to work at a golf course there. A friend of mine from the, the golf course back home, Westmount, he, he went on the trip and he su he suggested it to me. What it, what it constituted, Andrew, was uh, a, a year internship. You worked four months on the course uh, amongst the grounds crew, four months in the clubhouse, uh, whether it was uh, serving or bartending, and then four months in the pro shop. And, it, you know, really sounded something. But then all of a sudden, Wayne Parrish came to me in the last week of August and said, we'd like you to cover high school sports. It's not a full-time job, but, you know, you work enough days a week, it'll be like a full-time job and, and we'll, we'll pay you pretty well. And so I remember phoning my dad and saying, what do I do here? And he goes, well, what do you think of the Toronto Sun? What's your time been there over the last year and a bit? And I said, it's the best sports section in the country. And uh, he says, well, so sometimes time means everything. Uh, the timing's right here. I think you should take the job. You can always go to Europe uh, later in life. And uh, it was good advice. I took the job. Um, you know, it got me rolling. Uh, again, you know, you said, what What was the influence of the Toronto Sun? Well, a lot of people don't know this, but the Associated Press, the wire service in the United States, so be the Canadian press equivalent, used to rank sports sections in North America. And what they would do is they would, you know, keep an eye on just general coverage on a day-to-day -day basis, but they'd pick four days of a year, usually something really big, uh, and just see how the different papers handled it. And the Toronto Sun, I think for, well, more than four years in a row, but I, I remember this 1989 rankings, we finished not in the top 10, but the, the second 10 were honorable mentions. So they didn't rank from 11 to 20. They just said, here are 10 honorable mentions. And it was quite a an accomplishment. We were very happy, proud about that. I remember Wayne Parrish challenging us, let's get into the top 10 the next year. But I don't know if we ever did get in the top 10. My memory's not that great, but um, I know we did for a number of consecutive years, finishing that honorable mention, uh, which was really a, a big accomplishment. And, uh, you know, Wayne Parrish, I think he, he deserves a lot of credit. He sort of devised the pullout section. Uh, so on Sundays, it was a big read. There was always a feature, um, some uh, a whole page of baseball notes in the summer, hockey notes in the winter, uh, then later when the Raptors came, basketball, that sort of thing. And um, uh, he also, on the, when, he, when, he when he devised the Sunday pullout section, he gave us youngsters an opportunity to write the odd column on what was called the Beats page. And uh, 
that was kind of a, a something to look forward to. Maybe once a month your term would come up. And, uh, you know, I think back in those days, I wrote a junior hockey beat page column. And uh, that was about the same time Eric Lindros is coming up. So junior hockey was very popular. But, you know, Wayne had a great, uh, he believed in something called the spiral effect. Get the readers while they're young. So they had a good high school sports coverage, university sports coverage, uh, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you just don't see that anymore. You know, you don't see that those those sports covered. Uh, you know, case in point, U- University of New Brunswick. How many people know that they went the entire regular season this year at a perfect thirty and zero, never been done before? They're the defending University Cup champions, and uh, you know, it's just too bad. We, you know, that story is not. Uh, you know, even on not even on TSN or Sportsnet that you know this kind of accomplishment's being made right now. True, true. Things have changed so dramatically. You guys were definitely the heavyweights back in that day. Now, Tim, how did you then transition to the Globe and Mail in uh, 2001? Well, there's a little step there in 2000, just after the All-Star game was here, I believe. I got a call from Bob Goodenow, the NHL PA, and uh, their media relations person named Devin Smith was moving on to a bigger and better role. He's still in charge of, to this day, their charity wing, which, uh, you know, players donate money and, you, you know, maybe to their hometown and you get a whole minor hockey system uh, full of equipment. So and they were looking for a media relations guy. Devin suggested me. We He had previously been with the Vancouver Canucks under Mike Keenan, of all people. Uh, you know, these things come back in circles. And uh, he suggested that maybe Bob contact me. And uh, I always like to try things new. And I, it was probably, in hindsight, a bad move because I was just sort of coming up into my own and, and that. But you know what? This sort of interests me. And I said, I'll, I'll give it a year and see what I can do. And uh, I lasted, I think, 10 and a half months. Um, it wasn't my cup of tea. The hours were too long, really. Too much travel. I started that job right in the middle of a, what's called a spring tour, where Bob goes around and visits every team and just kind of updates them. And uh, they were already preparing for the 2004-2005 lockout. So uh, it just got to be a little too much. And, and then... Maybe I would have stayed, Andrew, but all of a sudden my friend Steve McAllister called with another new opportunity at the Globe and Mail, and that was to become assistant sports editor. Like He sort of was given the idea by the higher-ups at uh, at the Globe that they were going to turn it into a real sports section, you know, back to the heyday. They used to have a great sports section, and back in those days it was only two or three page, well, it still is, but... Uh, so he wanted me to come along, maybe recruit some other guys, steal some guys maybe away from the sun. I'm not sure. Uh, unfortunately, that never really materialized. It stayed, you know, very small section, even though it had a talented core of people. You know, guys like uh, uh, Jim Christie was, you know, one of the better Olympic writers at the time, and Larry Milson, one of the better baseball writers at the time. Dave Schultz, really one of the best business hockey writers I've ever uh, come across. But I would... When I took the job, I said to Steve, look, I'll t- I'm going to take in the job. I'm going to try it for three years. I'm going to give it three years. If it's something I don't like, can you promise me that I can go back on the hockey beat? And he says that agreed. So again, I my job was to come in at three o'clock every day and work till 11 or midnight, kind of maybe make sure the first edition got off fine and work with the desk. We had such a great desk, like so veteran you know, I really wasn't, uh, I didn't feel I was contributing much. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes because those guys had been there for so long and then uh, they were really good too. So I went back on the hockey beat uh, just before that lockout started and boy, what a time to come because that was the year the entire season was canceled and I think it really put hockey back a few years. I think it did. It was, we're still wondering whether it's fully recovered. On the business side, it certainly has, but from from the fans and the viewers, now, Tim, you made a big change following that. Hockey late in Canada, late 2009. How'd you make that transition? That, that sort of took forever to to, material, to uh, come to fruition because, you know, they had contacted me about the, that possibility. And the timing couldn't have been better because Steve uh, moved on and uh, we, got a, we had a new guy in. And uh, so I was kind of ready for another change. Uh, we couldn't get it done for the for the time of the hockey season starting. I think we were maybe middle of October when I started there. But what they were looking, they had a website, good, good, really good website, but no real staff writers. It was more just wire service, copy, that sort of thing. 
So they wanted something to supplement the Hockey Night in Canada, and uh, they brought me in there to do that. It was a great experience because I got to do uh, radio and television, and uh, so that's something I had never done before in my life. So it was a chance just, again, to try something new, branch out a bit, and, uh, you know, it was really good. Plus, uh, I also became a columnist, I guess, a full-time columnist. Yes, I did a lot of reporting, but I did also get to write a lot of opinion pieces. Now, did you enjoy being on TV as people now knew what you looked like and could actually start accosting you in person on the street? I remember the first time I appeared on Hockey in Canada. It was pr- it was a pretty neat experience. Uh, you know, Don Cherry came over to me afterwards and said, uh, I don't know if they're going to have you on again any anymore, Tim Boy, but uh, if you get any good stories like you just had on the air, uh, give them to me. So that was quite funny and uh it was it was it was a good a good night. I remember getting a lot of emails about from people, old friends I hadn't heard from in a long time, and uh, uh, you know I probably appeared maybe several. I'd say about ten times in total, uh, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. And since leaving hockey in Canada, how have you enjoyed the freedom of the last decade as a, a free agent and a freelancer? It, it's been a challenge. What I've tried to do is uh, keep my hand in it with Canadian press. An old friend of mine from the Toronto Sundays, Mike Kareen, uh, became sports editor there, I'm going to say about six or seven years ago. And in 2019, he approached me about sort of being the Toronto fill-in guy. So, and, you know, thank, thankfully he knew my experience wasn't just hockey, right, that I could do other sports. Um, so I, I started doing a lot of Blue Jays that summer, uh, but also TFC, uh, Argos, would go to Hamilton, do the Ticats. Uh, what else did I do? I was all fill in for the Raptors and Leafs, and uh, uh, so you know it was a it was a catch all sort of position. Maybe get fifty assignments a year. Uh, it doesn't pay great, but you know you you keep your hand in it. And uh, unfortunately, the pandemic hit the next year. So the Blue Jays, uh, remember they they played a lot in uh, Dunedin and Buffalo. Uh, they didn't come back until I think August of twenty one. And uh, so it, there were some lean times there. But then again, we were I was busy with Scott. I was busy with my own book because that was about the time I was writing that. Uh, so, you know, no, it's been good. I, and on top of that, Andrew, I've, I've tried some other jobs too. Like I've always, you know, things I was interested in. I worked at a hospital, uh, Michael Guerin, uh, for six months last year. I just got a job I'm starting. I'm still training, uh, working as a part-time concierge at the King Edward Hotel. You know, I didn't really want that position. I wanted to be the doorman, but you can't break into the, being a doorman there because those two guys have been there forever. Uh, I'm going to be a starter at a golf course this summer, Toronto Golf, out on Dixie Road. And uh, so, you know, I like to try different things and uh, uh, keep them busy like that. I think it's fabulous. This is the freedom that comes with having a little more choice and availability. And uh, I think that's great. You're pursuing things you like, all these different things. You don't have to be just one thing anymore. I think that's the big change. Tim, let's talk about your book, which chronicles the Canadian men's team winning hockey gold 22 years ago at the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City. Again, the book is called Gold, How Gretzky's Men Ended Canada's 50-Year Olympic Hockey Drought. Now, you covered those Olympics for the Globe and Mail. How did your book project come about? Well, like I said, it was Scotty really urged, Scott Morrison really urged me to write it. It was tough getting a publisher. Again, it was just when we were, when we signed the deal, with Triumph. It's a Chicago-based. They do a lot of sports books. Um, it was just right as the pandemic was starting in March uh, March of 2020. So we, we got we got that deal done. And um, I, I, I'd always sort of had this in my mind about this team because, yes, we celebrated in 72 for us, for us if we're old enough. Uh, yes, we celebrated in in 87. Was, yes, they won in 72, but I can't really remember if that was a big celebration. But 87 was a big one. Well, it struck me when I got back from Salt Lake City talking to friends, uh, they all wanted to know about the men's hockey team. Uh, I read all the papers that, you know, to get caught up and I saw the celebrations across, uh, across the country. Uh, I, you know, Bob Cole, I, I consider a, a good friend and he, he told me some stories about afterwards, how everybody was coming up and, and, and talking to him about his legendary call. I had to look it up on the, on the internet, watched the last few minutes of that game. Well, I watched all the games over for the book, but uh, just it, his call really struck me. And, you know, wasn't playing like a lot of these broadcasters do nowadays. Now, a 
after 50 years, it's time for Canada to stand up and cheer. Stand up and cheer, everybody. The Olympics, Salt Lake City, 2002, men's ice hockey gold medal, Canada. Uh, you know, the great story uh, that I put in the book, but he told me about uh, before the, before I started writing, it was that writing into Jean Chrétien, who was the prime minister at the time, and he, he came up to Bob and just congratulated him on what a great final call. And uh, and Bob said to him, uh, well, what did you do and how did you celebrate? He goes, well, I, d- I did what you said. I stood up and I cheered like a Canadian. I was proud of a proud Canadian. So it was, and, and Bob was really emotional about the whole story because he said, you know, he, he, a lot of people don't know this, but Foster Hewitt, I can't remember if he was, I think he was the television voice of the 72 Summit Series. Well, Bob was the radio voice. So, he, you know, amongst all the things he's covered, he said there's 72 and then there's 2002 for him where this was the second best. And, you know, the more I, I thought about him, again, I was, you know, Ian Leggett, a golfer. Uh, from Cambridge, Ontario, not too far away from my hometown. I knew him growing up playing junior golf with, with him. And uh, I remember uh, running into Dave Perkins, the uh, the legendary columnist for the Toronto Star, after the after Canada won the gold. And he's a golfer like I am. And he said, can you imagine Ian Leggett won today? This, it's going to be on the back pages. It usually will be on the front page, right? But he got secondary coverage because of the, what, what the men did. And uh, so I always kept that in the back of my mind. I never really talked to Ian about it. I got a hold of him and said, uh, you know, what was that like for you? And he goes, well, you know, I'm a hockey nut. He said, I was getting updates from uh, one of the on-course reporters, and I think I was on the 14th tee when Canada won. Another Canadian named Glenn Natchuk was on the 16th hole, and we sort of waved to each other saying, hey, did you hear Canada won, that sort of thing. He said, but the coolest part I can tell you about this, Tim, is uh, on my way home, I had a two-hour drive. I was living in Arizona at the time. I think he won in Scottsdale and he was or no he won in Phoenix and he was going to Scottsdale something like that anyway two hour drive he's playing all these all his messages messages on his phone on the ride home and the last one is from Wayne Gretzky hey congratulations Ian I heard you won one of the biggest days in Wayne's uh, life he, he takes time out to congratulate Ian Leggett so that's just some of the stories I I brought to the book surrounding the tournament you sort of get the importance of what this tournament meant to a lot of people because you know, if you remember, Canada was really going through a, a tough time international with international hockey. Maybe it started with the 96 World Cup for the first time they got beat by the Americans. Then the 98 Olympics, the first time the NHL players were allowed to play. They had that disappointment of losing the shootout to Dominic Hasek. The World Junior team wasn't doing very well. The women didn't even win in the Gato, and they were, you know, such a dominant force. So then there was a summit, I think it was 1999, What's Wrong With Our Game? And this was sort of a, well, the women really started the trend in 2002. They won a couple of days before the men. But, the, you know, the men uh, put this put the country in celebration, I think put the country back on, on top in terms of hockey. The country was back on top in terms of hockey. Let's talk about some of the major actors in your story. What did you learn about Wayne Gretzky? Well, funny story about Wayne. He was one of the hardest guys to get a hold of. And, uh, you know, I, I've always had this thing in the back of my head that he do, he never really liked me because uh, I had written a column. I, I used to do some freelance for the Sporting News. And uh, he came out at a golf tournament one summer. It was in Edmonton saying, you know, if the players don't watch it, uh, they're going to bargain the small market team right out of it. This is a height of free agency. And he didn't think, I think he was part owner of Phoenix at the time now Arizona, and he was crying for, for his team that they couldn't sign any big free agents. And meantime, they signed Brett Hall. They, 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 were, they were doing okay, despite their attendance woes. And uh, so I just wrote a column saying, you know, basically, Wayne, remember when you were a free agent, you signed with the, arguably the biggest market in, in hockey in the New York Rangers that year. You know, he could have signed with St. Louis. He could have signed with Vancouver. But, uh, of course, he signed with New York Rangers. Anyway, Wayne wasn't very happy. I could tell the next few times I ran into him in a scrum or something like that, he you know, he, he wasn't his usual because he was such a nice guy to everybody in the media, but he wasn't nice to me. Previous to that, even though I was an assistant sports writer, I wrote a story saying that Gretzky and the management team for 2002 are going to make their eight selections. Remember how they came out and 
selected part of the team early. It was for a marketing, I guess. And everybody was trying to guess. And everybody basically had seven guys. The one guy that nobody had, but I had, and it was just a guess, Andrew, wasn't any inside information. I tried to put two and two together. Gretzky's good buddy, Mike Barnett, his agent, and then general manager in, in Arizona was representing Owen Nolan at the time. And Owen was a pretty good player. So I said, I said, Owen Nolan's the eighth player. And I was right. So uh, I think I think I put this story in the book, but one night I'm I'm at the Globe and Mail, and all of a sudden my private line rings, and it's uh, Brad Pascal from Hockey Canada. He was the media relations guy. Now he's assistant general manager with Calgary, and he says, uh, uh, "Tim, yeah, you got a few minutes? Sure, yeah. What's up? What's up?" He goes, "Wayne Gretzky wants to talk to you." And I said, "Yeah, right." But he came on the phone, and uh, he said, "Hey, congratulations! You're the only guy that got the eight right." And I, oh my God. So he goes, here, here are my numbers. If you have any more, if you need me for anything, any questions. So later that year, Rodeur's playing Curtis Joseph in the playoffs, Devils versus Leeds. And these were, along with Patrick Waugh, these were considered the top contenders to become uh, the Olympic team goalie. So I called Wayne and uh, to see if I could get a little story on how, how much does this series weigh on their decisions and that. He never called me back. So I thought, what a jerk, right? But anyway, I, I'll credit Bob Nicholson, who's now with the Oilers, but was in charge of Hockey Canada back when in 2002. He was really got behind the project of the book. And he, he, when, when I ended my interview with him, he said, is there anything I can do for you? I said, you know what? Gretzky hasn't called me back. Is there anything you can do for me? And about two days later, the phone rang. And I said to Wayne off the top, I'll take all, you know, I'll take only 15 minutes of your time because I know you're you're a busy man. He goes, okay, yeah, no problem. And so I started asking my questions. We talked mostly about uh, uh, the decision to hire Pat Quinn as coach, uh, building the team, some of the tougher decisions he had, and the rant, of course, after the check game, where he complained about the referee and that sort of thing. Anyway, I, you know, how sometimes when you talk to somebody, you have it in the top corner that how the duration of the call and. I see 15 minutes. So I saw Wayne, that's 15 minutes. That's great. You were great. Thanks a lot. Oh, no, I got one more story for him. And he told me about how Steve Eiserman shouldn't have played the last game. He was he had such a bad knee. Uh, Kenny Lowe, the trainer, came up to him and said, I don't think Steve should play. What do you think? What does he want? Eiserman wants to play. Well, then let him play. You know, and He didn't come back until, uh, I think, the third round of the playoffs that year because he was so hurt. Then I said, well, thanks a lot, Wayne. No, no, I got one more story for you. And there was a great story about after the rant, the next day, Bill McCurry, the referee, who refed that check game that got Wayne's ire up, was waiting for him in the parking lot, not to fight him. Although McCurry told me his side of the story. He says, I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, so McCurry's purpose to meet, to, to be waiting for Wayne was, his daughter was uh, was bullied in high, in uh, elementary school the next day after Gretzky's rant. So your daddy's a cheater. Your daddy's a cheater because he was roughing that check game. Wayne didn't like some of the calls he made. And Wayne just took it to heart. Like So he said, he offered to McCreary to call the school and tell the boys to lay off. But McCreary said, no, no, that's not necessary. But I just wanted to let you know the weight of your words is still they're pretty big across the country. This is what's going on back home. And you know, it wasn't that Gretzky regretted the ramp because, you know, you could make an argument that it, it galvanized the team, brought them together. They played their best hockey from that from that point on in. I'd argue that they, they played their best hockey from that last third period against the Czech Republic to come back and tie that game. That Theo Fleury uh, setup of uh, Joe Neuendijk was big, and, uh, you know, they just went on from there. But, uh, like, I'm glad you brought that up because he was a big part of the book, and I think without... His half an hour, whatever he ended up giving me, you just don't get a lot of those inside stories. You know, we could go into the Pat Quinn story because I, I think that's really interesting on, on how he got to coach. But uh, you know, it just goes on from there. Well, let's jump into that because the late Pat Quinn was head coach. Tim, would you say that at that level of coaching, he wasn't really there for the X's and the O's, but rather there for the leadership? You're exactly right. So it's uh, I'll, I'll go back to the story of how he got hired. Well, first of all, we should go back to the story about how Wayne Gretzky got fired or put in that position. Um, you know, it didn't go well in, in, in 1998. 
uh, Bob Clark and Bob Ganey were uh, general managers. I think Bobby was the general manager. Ganey was the associate general manager. But, it, you know, I talked to Bob Clark because I, I had heard from somebody that he cared so much about what went wrong, uh, the 98 team, that he wrote a, a dissertation or a paper uh, uh, about his thoughts on what went wrong in 98. And uh, he ended it with, and this went to Bob Nicholson, you should hire Wayne Gretzky or get him involved in some capacity. He's, he's unbelievable. And the story was, is that, and this is a story Clarkie told me, every morning um, in the athlete's village, there's a cafeteria there. Ganey and uh, Clark would meet for coffee, and sometimes Gretzky would be down there, and so he'd join in, and they would talk, talk shop, and uh, Clark came away from those gatherings. I can't believe how much he knows about other teams, other players, other coaches, and this sort of thing. So that stuck to in Bob Nicholson's uh, mind, and so when he was putting together the, the 2002 or team or he, he first went down to California and spent a couple of days with Gretzky just to get to know him because he really didn't know him that well. But uh, eventually in those two days, they got around to uh, to talking about who, who Wayne would, would hire as coach. And uh, they agreed that one of their lunches, early lunches, you put four names down on a piece of paper, Nicholson put down four, and then Gretzky put down four. There was one different name. I couldn't, I couldn't get them to tell me the four names, but Nicholson had Quinn. And Gretzky didn't have Quinn. And uh, Gretzky said to Nicholson, why would you have Quinn? And he goes, I- I've always gone along with Pat. Uh, he knows so much about the game. And I think he's a communicator. And he's, he, yes, he's an intimidating figure, but I think he'd be the perfect coach in a short-term tournament. Anyway, uh, so they they didn't talk anything more. The next day they played golf. And back in those days, uh, Gretzky's neighbor in California was Russ Cortnell. And so Russ joined the foursome, and uh, they went and they retired to the to the restaurant, the clubhouse after. And uh, Gretzky said, "Russ, of these names here, who would you hire as the coach?" Oh, without a doubt, back Quinn. It struck Gretzky. So uh, why is that? And he goes, "Oh, the the guy is a coach's coach, and but he's not a he's not afraid to to stand up to a star player. You need him in a short term event like this. Sort of same thing as Nicholson said." And uh, so that's how uh, Quinn was hired. And uh, Quinn didn't know the story until years later. 2012, actually, was the the World Junior was split between Edmonton and Calgary. And, and when they moved to Calgary for the, la- the later uh, portion of the tournament, they had a big reunion of all the ter- of all the teams, the gold medal winning teams. And of course, Pat coached the 2009 World Junior team in Ottawa that won gold. So uh, Nicholson, Quinn, and Cordinal, who played on one of the gold medal teams in the 80s, found themselves near the bar of the of the receptions. And uh, Nicholson said to Quinn, you know, I ever tell you how you got hired for the 2002 Olympic team? And he says, no. He goes, it was this guy right here. And uh, he told the story. And, you know, Pat could get really emotional. But I guess he had a little tear in his eye. And he says, let me get you a glass of wine, Russ. And Russ says, it's free here. <laughs> it's complimentary at this a reception, but you know, kind of a neat little story. Uh, you know, too bad Pat wasn't around. I'd like to, uh, you know, talk to him about uh, that tournament. But enough people filled me in. The players obviously loved the guy. So many players from that team eventually played for him down the road. Uh, you know, whether it was uh, Joe Newendike or um, Eddie Belfort. You know, there was a lot of players that wanted to play for Pat again, and uh, they had so much respect for him. And I'll just leave you with the, the Pat Quinn section here with one. Great story. I think it was Michael Pekka who was the great checking center on that team, but he told me a, a wonderful story about uh, the third period, in, or sorry, the second period intermission in the in the gold medal final. You know, Canada's dominating, but they're only up 3-2. So a fluky goal, you know, was, you know, it, it could go any way. And uh, in the dressing room, Ken Hitchcock, who was one of the assistant coaches, and Pat were listening to some of the things the players were saying including Mario Lemieux. And uh, Hitchcock says to Quinn, they're saying exactly what we want to say to them. And Pat says, you're right. We've got a great bunch of leaders. I'm so confident that they're going to get this job done. So he went out for his final words before before the team went out for the third period. And 
he looked at Iserman, he looked at Shanahan, he, you know, he looked all over the dressing room, a lot of and it just silence. And then he says, well, he had, I shouldn't say Andrew, he had papers in his hand, like of the game plan or whatever. And he crumpled them up and threw it in the nearby garbage cases. You guys know what to do. And then they, they went out and played their best period of the tournament, 5-2, and then the celebration started. Well, this being the Toronto Legends podcast, we love all these names. Pat Quinn, Russ Cortinal, great uh, Maple Leafs as well. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got Chef Susur Lee, Body Breaks Hal Johnson, Comedian Paul Reiser, Michael Pinball Clemens, our UN Ambassador Bob Ray, Maple Leafs Captain Rick Vive, Dragon's Den's Wes Hall, and TVO's Steve Pakin. How they did it directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365 wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegends.ca. Now, Joe Sackick was arguably the best hockey player in the world at that point. Would you agree? Oh, yeah, for sure. And uh, such a humble guy. Uh, again, this was a team of leaders. I, I forget how many captains they had. I think it was something like 12 captains. 12 players at the time were either captains of their NHL team or had been captains. And then another, I think, four, like Chris Pronger, say, went on to be the captain of the St. Louis Blues or, or the Anaheim Ducks, I think, for a while. So an amazing collection of leaders and, and, and veteran players. Again, I think a, a good point was uh, half the team went through the 98 disappointment, so they knew what to expect this time around and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, Joe was definitely coming. He was coming off a Stanley Cup victory. And I think, did he win the Conn Smythe? Maybe he was a, maybe a hard trophy winner. I'm not sure. But just such a good player. And again, if I was to have one word to describe the team, it was, it was a calmness. You know, while, while the country back here was going nuts when they lost to Sweden in the opener, only beat Germany by a goal in the second game, and then tied Czech Republic going into the medal uh, playoff round, you know, there was a lot of uh, consternation, nervousness, whatever you want to call it. And there's a story, I think Kevin Lowe was one of the assistant general managers, told me um, before the Finnish game, the first game in the playoff round, they're all sitting, uh, all the brass is in the hallway outside the dressing room, all nervous. And uh, Joe Saga walks by and he had, he just couldn't resist because he could see the nervousness amongst his group and said, don't worry, guys, what are y'all worried about? We got this. And, uh, you know, that he was a calming influence and he played so well. You know, there's a great story that uh, Ryan, not uh, Ryan Smith, Jerome McGinla and Simon Gagne told me. After the first game, my memory serves me correct here, I think Sackick started the tournament, uh, that game against Sweden, playing on a line with Merrill Lemieux and Steve Eiserman. You know, three great Hall of Famers. And it didn't go well. So the next day, they come back for practice and uh, they see the different color practice jerseys. It's now... Sackick with the two youngest forwards on the team, Aginla and Simon Gagne. And I can't remember if Aginla said it to Gagne or Gagne said it to Aginla, but they were sitting beside each other in the dressing room and Sackick's going to be pissed. You know, he, he goes from playing with Eisenman and Lemieux to us. And, and uh, Aginla told me the story how before that practice, Sackick comes over and shakes their hand and says, Hey guys, we're on the same line now. This is going to be great. I'm so excited. Let's get to know each other in practice, and then let's let's become the best line in this tournament. And they did. You know what? Great leadership. You know, just one final thing about Joe. He really got behind the project, as all the players did that I talked to. I think I only did. I didn't talk to three players. I was told Mario would not talk. I was told Al McGinnis has done uh, uh, reminiscing about his his great career. And poor Ed Jovanovsky's father was going through dementia that summer, so uh, he just didn't have the time to talk about it. But uh, Joe called me back out of the blue one day, and uh, he said, Hey, Tim, you know, I was thinking about our, our, our few talks we've had and stuff. I think you could take the time to send me all the quotes that I give, I gave you. I just want to make sure I said what I wanted to say. So I, I, I went through all the stuff, and, you know, I got his... There's probably about 20 quotes in there. I sent them all to him and then he sent back just one word, perfect. So <laughs> that to me, like if that's the best player in the team is getting behind this book, it's going to be a good book. Absolutely. 
And by the way, Tim, there were 14 future Hall of Famers on that team, which is crazy. I think it's up to 16 now because Aguila and who's the other guy that's got, somebody else got on from that team since since I wrote the book. And you could argue that uh, despite his politics, Theo Fleury should be in there. Um, you could argue that maybe Curtis Joseph uh, should be in the Hall of Fame. So I think that the only team that surpasses it for, for this sort of tournament or best on best hockey is the 76 Canada Cup team. I think they had 18 Hall of Famers, if I'm not mistaken. And equally amazing is how many of those players from that team have stayed involved in hockey as coaches or in management or even as owners. Yep, and it just shows you how much they love the game. You know, I remember, I'm a Detroit Tigers fan. Uh, sorry about that, Toronto Blue Jay fans, but uh, I remember reading an article column in the, one of the Detroit papers after they won the 84 World Series. And it, there was a quote in there from Alan Trammell saying something in the sense that, how could this team not win? You know, there was a bunch of us after every game, mostly home games, that you couldn't get out of the clubhouse because we just wanted to sit around and talk about baseball. And that's how I would imagine this hockey team because of the fact that, like you mentioned, so many of them have stayed in the game. You know, whether it's Adam Foote, who's now back coaching, Joe Sackett got a Stanley Cup years later as a general manager, now just solely the president. We all know Brendan Shanahan, that he's been a decade now running the Maple Leafs organization. You can go on and on. It's uh, it's absolutely something else to see all these guys remain in hockey. And they don't need to, but, you know, they don't need the cash, I should say, but, uh, you know, they love the game. Tim, why did you ask Chris Pronger to write the forward to your book? Chris and I kind of have a one of these neat relationships in the sense that I came up through the ranks the same time he was. So he was drafted in Peterborough. I remember meeting him at the OHL draft. You know, he was a six-round draft pick because everybody thought he was going to go play U.S. college hockey like his brother Sean did. Peterborough stole him, Dick Todd. He was a big reason why Peterborough got to the Memorial Cup in 93. I covered that Memorial Cup. I got to know his parents. I got to know Sean. Uh, Chris and I have similar senses of humor. He's a very funny, funny guy. You know, again, I'm, I keep going off on these tangents, but in the 2006 Stanley Cup final, he got suspended for running, I think, somebody in the previous round. So he holds his first little scrum. He's coming back to the to the series against Carolina and says, okay, I'm going to give the first question to Tiny Tim. And uh, he, as he points to me, I said, well, do you think he deserved the suspension? He goes, next question. <laughs> you know, it was really funny. But I, he just has a great sense of humor. So we we sort of got to know each other. He invited me to uh, the night when the Pete's ra- um, uh, hung his number in the rafters and that sort of thing. So, And I know how much this tournament meant to him. Uh, it was the second championship in his uh, three-pronged uh, triple crown, which is Olympic gold, Stanley Cup, and world championship. And then to boot, he's also got a world junior and an OHL championship. So, plus all his individual awards. Anyway, um, you know he did he did a nice job. Uh, I think the funny line Andrew was about, uh, you know, in fact the guy just came up with a documentary. Alexander Day uh, was number one the year Chris was number two in the draft, and Day had some line like, uh, you know, are you ha-? some somebody asked him, are you happy you got to be the first overall pick? Because yeah, because nobody remembers number two. So Pronger always used to have this line about uh, every time I played Dag after that, my stick would rub up and down the back of his legs a few times during the game. <laughs> so, you know, that was kind of neat too. He was definitely a character. Now, Tim, we should give a shout out to your literary agent, a past guest on this podcast, and also a poet of note, Mr. Brian Wood. Yeah, he's a great guy. And um, I think I put in the forward that... Uh, He's the reason why uh, there's so many good books out there, Canadian sports books. You know, he's the go-to agent, and uh, I certainly owe him a lot because uh, there weren't, you know, to this day I don't understand it, but there weren't many Canadian publishers who were interested in this book. We had to go to the States, but thank God we did because uh, they really got behind the project, and, um, you know, thanks to Brian Wood. Now, Tim, some people say you are better off not to meet your heroes because it has the potential to be a real bummer. Because you met so many personalities over your media career, I'm going to ask you for both the good and the bad. Firstly, who have you met in person who really blew you away and exceeded your expectation? 
No, that's an easy one, Andrew. Uh, Jack Nicholas. Uh, it was at the end of his career. You know, he designed Glen Abbey where the Canadian Open was for years. And so he always felt that it was important to come back and play. And uh, I was trying to get a, a uh, an interview with him uh, before he came to Glen Abbey one September. And his PR guy was actually from Montreal, an old sports writer, Larry O'Brien. And uh, so I, I called Larry down in the Columbus and uh, he said, well, why don't you fax a few questions and uh, we'll, we'll get together when, when early in the week when, uh, when Jack comes up. So one Tuesday, it was the Tuesday of the round before the tournament. I was there kind of late in the clubhouse in the media room and there was a, not a well-publicized event going on where Jack Nicholas was going to present some young junior golfer with a, some kind of a scholarship prize. And uh, so Larry comes up, he sees me in the media room. Uh, hey, maybe t- maybe this is a good time. So Jack says, yeah, I got 10 minutes. And anyway, we, we were talking for 10 minutes. And he goes, do you have any more questions? Because let's walk to the car. I got to meet some people for dinner. And we walked to the car. You know, it's about a five-minute walk. And we sat out in front of his car for another 10 minutes and he just, you know, was, you know, I, I always couldn't understand why a person wouldn't call you back because, you know, this is the greatest guy and or one of the greatest athletes ever. And he had this much time for a writer he didn't know and a reporter he didn't know. And, uh, so that's, uh, you know, yeah, that's, that's the guy I always tell people about. Now, of course, we got to talk about the flip side which is who have you met in person who really disappointed you to the point where, frankly, you wish you had just never actually met them? Yeah, probably uh, another golfer because you, you get more face time with that. You know, in hockey now, it's just a bunch of scrums and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the times are over when you get a one-on-one, uh, you know, like I, when I started on the beat. Uh, you know, there were such great guys back in those days, Wendell Clark included, one of my favorites, uh, Todd Gill. But uh, Greg Norman, oh, <laughs> what a jerk. He was a defending Canadian Open champion one year and not going to come into the press room to talk about, you know, I got wind of it by one of the organizers. He's not coming in. So I saw he was out on the course practicing and uh, he was coming off the 18th green. So I waited for him. I was, there was, there were, there was nobody around. And uh, he basically gave me one of these, you know, blew out, can't you guys leave me alone? I'm trying to perfect something like that. So I got about three or four questions. And, you know, I, I will admit the, the answers were great. So he gave me a, a, you know, and I was the only one to talk to him before the tournament. So that was good too. But, you know, sometimes you're nervous with when a guy reacts that way, but I'm glad I stuck it out and uh, got that interview. But uh, boy, and then there's other kinds of stories about him up in Canada. I could tell you about, I'm probably, sworn to secrecy on, but, uh, you know, he's not, he wasn't a great actor. And now you're seeing how some of the players who aren't in live don't like him. Of course, the players who are in live like him, but the very controversial character, that's for sure. Let's put him down as good content, not so good as a person. <laughs> he, sorry, Andrew. He was one of these guys and Joe Carter would be another one from my limited dealings with him. They could really turn it on when there was a camera on, but otherwise... Not great to deal with. Tim, shall we give a shout out to your wife, Kathy, who was the longtime producer for Don Cherry's Coach's Corner on Hockey Night in Canada? Yep, and she still works for Hockey Night in Canada. And, uh, you know, she does a great job. She just celebrated, like, like it's kind of a weird thing for me to 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 uh, to explain, but uh, even though Hockey Night Canada now is, is Roger's property, they do still use um, about 10 employees from CBC uh, on their weekly broadcasts. And, you know, Kathy's one of them still. And uh, so, you know, yeah, she misses Don not being on the air, of course. Uh, uh, I know they just exchanged phone calls uh, uh, when he turned 90 recently. Um, That's pretty impressive. And, uh, you know, he's he's quite the character. There's a funny story about that. I was out in uh, Port Credit watching a a friend of mine from high school, her son play for the poor credit team. And um, now, now he's playing for the Kitchener Rangers. But anyway, I went to a bar with uh, with Matthew's father after the game, and I overheard these three guys arguing. Don had just been fired by Sportsnet, and I heard these guys arguing about, you know, whether it was right or not. And two guys that took Cherry's side was were beating up on the 
on the guy that said, oh, it's about time, that sort of thing. So I went over to him and I said, sorry for eavesdropping, but I'm a Don Cherry guy too, and uh, I'd like to buy you guys a beer, but I'm not going to buy you a Budweiser like you're drinking because they were one of the sponsors that got rid of Don. Oh, okay, well, we'll take Molson Canadian. <laughs> so I told Kathy this story, and then oh, the next time she's telling, she talked to Don, she she relayed the story, and so Don would, uh, after a while, say, tell Tim he can drink Budweiser again if he wants. You know, he had forgiven them, but uh, I hadn't. <laughs> Tim, as we wrap up, I want to ask, where can we best follow you? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on Twitter and, and Facebook. Um, I'm not a real active participant. Um, you know, I'm right on the bubble there where I'm too old maybe to really get involved heavily on it. Uh, I never really, you know, I was probably one of the last uh, beat guys to join it in 2010. But, um, you know, I, I do read it because sometimes you do get some interesting information on it. So, uh, but I think, you know, reach out for me on Twitter and I'll uh, follow you back. I know I saw you just followed me, so I got to follow you back. Excellent. I will wait for that for sure. Again, Tim's book covering Canada's hockey championship at the 2002 Salt Lake is called Gold, How Gretzky's Men Ended Canada's 50-Year Olympic Drought, and you can get it wherever books are sold. Great to hear all the stories behind that kind of epic tournament, and of course, I want to wish you a continued success going forward. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Same to you. It was my pleasure to have you today. And to the listeners, on behalf of Tim Warnsby, I am Andrew Applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically. We become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca.